0: with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this day where we launch into all our different community groups and see how we might encourage one another in the reality of your grace and truth. And we pray now that as we look at this well-familiar passage that you would give us new ears and new eyes to see so that we would be your people as you have called us to be a people of blessing for the whole community to see. Take our minds now, think through them. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. By the power of the Holy Spirit, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this morning we begin a series that will run all the way for the next six or seven weeks entitled, The Good News According to Joseph. No, that's not a new gospel. It's the last 14 chapters of the book of Genesis, and you're going to see grace and truth even in the midst of a dysfunctional family. And we're going to look at the major points. Now, many of you are very familiar with this story, I know. We have theater goers here. You've been to Cleveland Square and Playhouse, and you've seen Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Yep, yeah, uh-huh. Uh, well, it's wonderful, musical, and it's great. It's fun. But it's one thing to go to a Broadway theater. We already marinate in the worldview of our day, But it's another thing to get your theology from Andrew Lloyd Webber. We're going to look at the grace and truth of God as he's truly revealed to us today. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles. If you're a guest with us, it's in the back of your bulletin. We're beginning Genesis 37, as Carol read for us. And what we learn about this is the reality of the favored son, the reality of the wickedness of humanity, and the reality of the sovereignty of God. The reality of the favored son, the reality of the wickedness of humanity, and the reality of the sovereignty of God. Let's look at the favored son first. Verse 3, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. Jacob, Israel, grew up desperately lacking the love and affirmation of his father, Isaac. He clearly, Isaac clearly preferred Esau over Jacob. The resulting inner neediness, the resulting inner lack of affirmation drove Jacob in many ways as he grew up one of the things it brought him to was to utterly fix his whole life on his wife, whom he loved dearly, Rachel. Rachel was beautiful, and Jacob looked at Rachel and said something like this in his heart, if I had her, then that would finally fix my life, and he married her. And he did fix his life on her. And he had two sons by Rachel, the youngest of all his children. He had Joseph, and then he had Benjamin, whom Rachel died giving birth to. And we can see what we can see here, and the narrator is telling us, is therefore the oldest child of Rachel, Joseph, became the new emotional center of Jacob's life. And Jacob gave him, it says here, a a robe of many colors. The old King James, a richly ornamented robe. Andrew Lloyd Webber, a coat of many colors. Dolly Parton, coat of many colors. We all heard about it. Actually, the Hebrew word is hard to translate. It means many colors. It, It might mean richly ornamented. But the key thing is the word rich. Jacob lavished on Joseph much more so than he lavished on his other sons and daughters by Leah, his other wife. And Joseph became the idol of Jacob's life, the God of Jacob's life, the central source of joy and love in his life. And as a result it poisoned the whole family system. So you see what happens here. He's only 17 years old. And we see in verse 2, it says, he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report uh, of them to their father. Now, we're going to see in a little bit his, his siblings were wicked. And some scholars think he's just being a snitch. But in view of verse 11, where it says his father kept the saying in mind, Jacob kept these dreams in his mind. So I don't think joseph personally i don't think that he was just being a snitch and he was arrogant oh he's 17 and as one who've been misunderstood at times it's not just what you say it's how you say it you know i'm sure as joseph said all these various dreams they were said with great hubris perhaps with arrogance, look back when you were 17, right? And so Jacob himself even rebukes Joseph. The whole point is, underneath what looks like a wealthy, prosperous family is a brokenness and sin that's going to destroy the family if something doesn't intervene into this family. And remember, Jacob's name has been changed now to what? Israel. These are the 12 tribes that are being formed here. Now, the tendency amongst many churches at this point is to begin to take Joseph and the brothers and teach merely morality. To teach, don't be arrogant and have great hubris. Have some wisdom. You didn't have to share all your dreams with them or or whatever. You hear that type of teaching. Here are the examples for right living, and here are the exemplars for right living, the heroes of the faith. Now, go emulate their lives. Go for it. But I want to share with you, the Bible is not mainly trying to show you how to live a good life. Frankly, Why would you want to follow anything that these guys do? Of course, negatively, yes, we should avoid some of the ways they live, but the Bible's purpose is to show us how God's grace breaks into your life against your will and saves you from the sin and brokenness that otherwise never would you have been able to be overcome and you would come to the Lord and be transformed That's what you see on every page of the Bible, and that's not religion. That's good news, according to Joseph. Because Joseph is God's man, and we're going to see this throughout the fall. He's the favored son who one day all knees will bow down and confess him as their Lord right? So that's the favored son. Let's look at the the wicked brothers. Notice, they hate him. They just hate him. It's not Joseph's fault. It's Israel's fault. The way he's fixed his heart on him over and above them and showed favoritism. And so in verse 4, verse 5, verse 8, they hate him. And hate is growing in them. Kim and I have been catching up on all the Mission Impossible movies, awaiting the new Mission Impossible movie when it comes out for streaming. And so we've been working our way through them and we, we love Ethan Hunt. The first one's my favorite because of the great intrigue and the backstabbing and the conniving that goes on there. It's awesome. And not only am I amazed at Ethan Hunt's bravery and going in at impossible odds, carrying out the mission, I'm f- just amazed at how evil the people is he goes after. I mean, I encourage you to watch him, man. These guys are evil. But that's his brothers, the way they treat him. All these guys could be in a mission Impossible movie, quite frankly. These are Joseph's brothers. For example, Reuben slept with his father's girlfriend. Simeon and Levi started an inner Nicene war. Gad, Naphtali, Asher, and Dan are all cast in bad light. And so they hate him, and they concoct this plan, verse 18 and 19, where it says, They saw Joseph from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. Pete Scazzaro says, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. You're not a self-made person. The things that have been done to you are every bit as important as the things that you have done and make you what you are. Your flaws did not happen merely through individual action. They happened through relationships. And you'll never see your flaws except through relationships. The people around you can see you much better than you can. You didn't get into the wrong that what's wrong with you through your individual choices alone. And you're not going to get out through your individual choices alone. We need community. We need one another. You need parties acting into your life with remarkable love and grace. That's what will heal you. You have to put yourself in a community where that happens. But most of all, you need a relationship with God. That's what's going to heal you. You have to have this power ricocheting around in your life showing you the good the bad and the ugly in other words we all need transformation change and that's the wickedness of the brothers and all of humanity by the way well the third thing this passage teaches us is about the wonderful sovereignty of god and what we're seeing here in what appears to be a sad dysfunctional story god will use as he does throughout all of the bible a story where he promotes one man amongst his people to rule and rescue all humanity he truly looks across the sphere in his people and picks one person and i want you to notice that nowhere in this passage does god ever speak He's utterly hidden, silent, yet he's protecting and seeking this one person. The artistry of the author, though God seems completely absent in the service, he must have been managing down to the minutest details every little thing that's happened here. All the terrible things, all the things that seem to make no sense, But every single one of them had to happen for the arrangement of the salvation of his family, Israel. God's wise, redeeming love is completely compatible, brothers and sisters, to all the bad things that happen in our lives, as well as all the successes in our lives. Look at verse 23 and 24. For example... So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. The word stripped there is a word that means to skin an animal. They violently took his robe off of him, ripped it off of him. He was probably thrown naked into the cistern. And they threw him. That is a Hebrew word that indicates like you would dump a dead body into a grave. If this Hebrew word is ever used with a live person, it also means to abandon them to death. We also know, though it doesn't tell us till chapter 24, when his brothers are reminiscing, Joseph cried as he went down into the cistern. He cried out get me out of here help me this is a violent act these brutal people they stripped them they seized them and they don't respond at all if this hadn't happened just like this everybody would have been lost not only would they have been lost because they wouldn't have been lost physically they would have been lost Spiritually. Because as we're going to see, only because Joseph is rejected, only because Joseph is sold into slavery, only because all these awful things happen to Joseph, will he be saved from his 17 year old hubris and arrogance. And only would the brothers be saved from a life of bitterness and hate. Turning them into always a violent people. And even Jacob himself. If all these things hadn't happened, there would have been no salvation. For this is reality that God is caring for Joseph even in his silence. And he's sovereign over it. Think about it, it's it's consistent throughout the Bible. Peter gets put into prison. Everybody prays. The angel comes, opens up the door, and out he walks. John the Baptist goes into the prison. All his disciples pray, and he gets beheaded. God's ways are not our ways, and he is sovereign over it. George Herbert The great Anglican minister of the 17th century was an amazing poet. And he writes about this reality of God's sovereign works both in our hills and our valleys in a poem called Joseph's Coat. He writes in this poem, he talks about suffering. And he says he realizes that suffering can ruin his life. There's a place in the poem where he says, If but one grief and smart among my many had his full career, sure, it would carry with it even my heart. What he means by that, he says that suffering can come into your life, any disappointment, any trouble. It can destroy your faith. It can make you hard-hearted and bitter. But he doesn't end there. He says, But God hath spoiled the race and given to anguish one of Joy's coats, ticing it with relief. Meaning, almost every grief, grief, every suffering that comes into my heart has the potential to ruin me. But when suffering comes into my life, I got something. I got God's coat over me. A coat that God has given me assuring me of his love in Jesus Christ. He's referring to the whole narrative, 14 chapters of Joseph's life, which we're going to see unveiled for us. Because Joseph's coat was proof positive that his father adored him. Just like you have a coat when you trust in Jesus Christ for yourself. For centuries later, one another came to his own brethren, and his own brethren received him not. Another one was sold for silver and betrayed by the people that were closest to him. Another one came, was stripped naked, abandoned to die, who cried out in the dark, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here's the difference between them Joseph was being turned into a savior, the only way God's salvation ever works. Joseph was being turned into a Savior through weakness, suffering, and rejection. Joseph could only save the community by being rejected by the community. He could never be their Savior unless he was first lost, humbled, rejected, and sold. Joseph was being turned involuntarily into the Savior of, human, of the human family, Jesus voluntarily became the Savior of the world. His cry of dereliction was vastly greater. His nakedness and his sense of abandonment was infinitely beyond Joseph's. Jesus came voluntarily to become Savior of us all because when Jesus was on the cross, he wasn't just physically naked. He was physically stripped of his Father's love. He was being punished for our sin, and when suffering hits you you will always get back in touch with this deep, profound sense of being human, which we all say to ourselves in times of our own suffering, you know, what did I do to deserve this? I must have done something. Lord, what, what was it? We all humans do it. But when suffering comes, unless you see the one who lost the father's coat, you'll miss the point of it. You see, you can be assured of the Father's love by looking at the cross of Jesus Christ for you. Here's the one who lost the Father's love, paying our penalty so we could know, in spite of our imperfect life, God still loves us. When I ask God to accept me because of what Jesus has done, I get the coat of righteousness that I don't deserve. But that's what each and every one of us actually need so let's apply this two things number one recognize the sovereignty of god in your life god does not spare anything in our past that can god cannot use today and into the future for his glory and for your edification and your joy There's a deeper meaning in this for all of us to grasp that God is in control. Our culture thinks the world's spinning out of control. He has it under control. Let's live in that reality. Trust the valleys that you're in and trust Him on the mountaintops you find yourself on. Recognize God is sovereign. Secondly, get the coat. If I could put the good news of God and Jesus Christ into one sentence, it would be, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Surrender to him. And as you do, you'll find yourself reading the word more intentionally, slowly and surely, praying more, a more of a disciplined way of prayer, A life of contemplation. And sometimes you'll find yourself in the Holy of Holies, and sometimes it'll feel like your prayers are bouncing off the wall. That's normal Christian life. You get it in episodes, but even the memory of God's love for you will sustain you. And that's what you need. You go get the coat. And you find yourself being a transformed life. We change. One such changed life in our midst is our friend Gina Sonnenberg. And Gina's going to come now forward and tell you her life-changing story so that we can all be encouraged. Gina? Gina?
1: The summer before second grade, I attended a vacation Bible school where I learned about Jesus dying for my sins and asked him to come into my heart. I was so happy, I told my dad immediately when I got home. His reaction was not what I expected, telling me we did not believe in God or Jesus. But I knew he was wrong. In fourth grade, my sister and I were invited to attend wanna. Awana is a Christian club where children memorize Bible verses and compete in physical activities. Every Monday night, Mr. Hall would drive the church van and pick up all of the children who wanted to attend Awana. A lady always sat in the back of the van watching over the children. Everyone called her Grandma Ziegler. All of us kids were country kids. I lived 15 minutes from town. You needed to attend Sunday school and church to earn enough points in Awana. So every Sunday morning, the Sensenbaws, their two children, Grandma Ziegler, my sister and I, climbed into an old Volkswagen Rabbit, that was before seatbelt laws, on the winter roads of northern Michigan to make the trek to church. Mrs. Sensenbaugh was my Sunday school teacher, and she became very dear to me. I could call her at home whenever I had questions or was in trouble. She taught me about baptism, and I was baptized the following summer in Grandma Ziegler's Pond during a church picnic. She found a way for us kids who couldn't afford church camp in the summer to be able to attend and drove us there herself. She was the first adult in my life to model unconditional love to me, and it meant a lot to see her face every Sunday morning. Everything wasn't perfect. My home life was chaotic. I started having panic attacks when I turned 14. I watched Mrs. Sensenbaugh struggle up and down with cancer for a couple of years before passing away when I was 17. She still cared about me when she was in remission, asking me how my walk with the Lord was and what was happening in our youth group. I am grateful for the Christian foundation given to me because of all the adults who weren't my family, but showed up for me every week for years with open hearts.
0: Thank you, Gina. Mm Someone came into Gina's life and said, come and see. When she was a young girl. And notice she said it wasn't easy. The Christian life is not always easy. We'll tell you right up the fat, right up front. But it's a life of flourishing and hope and peace, and the world can't copy it. It's a changed life come be transformed with us let's pray heavenly father we we pray you would show us how we can have our lives in this coat the assurance of your love for us just like gina has the assurance of your love father the assurance of your adoration and delight of us and we pray lord that as we have that we'll be able to turn even our suffering into joy We'll turn our troubles into wisdom and holiness. And we would rejoice with those who rejoice and we'd be able to weep with those who weep. And so, Lord, we would ask you to show us how we can do that. And as we come to the communion table this morning, we pray you would make yourself and your grace and truth and your love real to us this day. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.